When was the point that you started to invest in other operators? Yeah, I think it's been more of a recent transition in operators. I've invested around four or five years ago in businesses because that was an allocation that I don't have any exposure to, right? I was so heavily focused into real estate. Um, Alibit, probably not that great. Businesses have a big failure rate, especially when you're investing in tech, as you know, um, which that has changed. My strategy has changed towards that in the latter parts of my life so far. All right, welcome to another episode of the Legacy Wealth Podcast, where we help accredited business owners learn anything and everything there is to investing in funds. And today, we have on the show one of my good friends uh, from GoBundance, Pasha, uh, and he is he used to be a professional poker player. You know, he dropped out of college and and uh, to make money playing poker, and then in 2011, he finally got into real estate, where he started flipping homes at auctions. And, uh, you know, since then has been involved in over $250 million of transactions in real estate across all different asset types, anything from multifamily to mobile home parks to boutique motels. Uh, and then in uh, recently, he has built up uh, Evoke Capital, which uh, their primary objective is to help others achieve financial freedom through real estate investing. And to date, They've invested in over 1,300 units. So I'm excited to have Pasha on the show. Welcome welcome to the show, Pasha. Thank you, Pascal. I, I appreciate being here. Let me ask you a question. Did you avoid saying my last name? Because- I, did, I, I did. We've known each, <laughs> we each other for so long, and I still... There was a pause, I, and I just... Because I've done the same thing before. Like, I don't want to mess it up, so... <laughs> yeah, okay. So so give me give me the last name. Esfandiari. Esfandiari. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I there totally you go. I yeah, totally I know. Um, <laughs> but I, I am really excited to be here. I think what you're doing is incredible. I think this is so needed. And I'm, I'm ready to deliver as much value as I can, man. Hell, yeah. Well, cool. What I wanted to do is just start out with a little bit of your background and how it relates to you starting investing into funds. And that, you know, I think maybe starts as early as, you know, your poker career, as we talked about earlier. Yeah, um, sure. So, I, I, you know, my journey is a little different than most. Uh, school was always really tough for me. After about eighth grade, it just became really tough for me, ADD. Uh, you know, even though I think ADD is misdiagnosed now way too much and just so easily given to everybody. Um, but that was really tough for me. And so um, when I got to college, I just knew really quickly it wasn't for me. My brother around that time won um, a big tournament for 1.4 million, right as poker was kind of blowing up. And, you know, I'm competitive. So if he could do it, I could do it, right? Like that's the how it works between brothers. <laughs> uh, and then so I started playing poker. You know, uh, either the players were really bad or I was really good. And I'm gonna I'm gonna swing on the side that the players were really bad. And I started making really good money uh, for being 21 years old. And you know, essentially, travel was able to travel the world. I was making more than most people were making in like C-suite positions, and I was able to do whatever I wanted as a kid. The trouble with that, though, is that poker can highlight a lot of um, your good habits with your bad habits. And, you know, so as much as I was making money, it's not like I was ever taught in the educational system or by my parents or my father, rather, um, because he was always gone working two jobs providing for us, how to manage money. Uh, So I would go on these crazy swings um, with my bankroll 
realized very quickly on uh, into the career when I was about 25, 26, I just realized this wasn't for me. I want to build something bigger than myself. Poker is great, but where my aspirations were in life, this wouldn't do it for me. I wanted to be, also be a family man. I'm really into health, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I always knew real estate was the end game for me. So I went and interned for a family friend for three months, and I learned how to flip homes at auction sight unseen. This was right about 2000, end of 2009, 2010 range. And I learned as much as I could, and I just kept underwriting deals forever. And I found my first mobile home in a mobile home park. Uh, and I finally bought after probably six months of just uh, trying at the auctions. But I just wanted to be ultra conservative on my first one. Made every mistake you can make. Made about $3,000 still. Got the bug. And then it was just lights out since. And and everything has been real estate there forward. Got it. And so uh, so you got into mobile home parks after that. And, and you started investing across a bunch of different asset classes, yeah. right? Yeah. T talk to us a little bit about um, maybe the, all the different types of assets, asset classes you've invested into and and uh, that we talked about before the show. Sure. So I obviously started with residential and investing in that. It was kind of where I got my education. It was the lowest hanging fruit. And I did that for many, many years. Then I did land up construction in Los Angeles on Hillside, which was a whole nother beast that I would just, it's boring. It's tedious. It sucks. I hate the city. I hate the neighborhood councils. I'm just not doing it anymore. Um, and then after I decided I wanted to get out of residential, I was really kind of seeing what worked. I think one of the many blessings I have is I was able to ask myself some really powerful questions. It's like, you know, with my ADD, uh, what can I invest in or buy that's going to have faster results to keep me occupied and interested? And so I end up getting into a motel because it's you see results every day and it's and it's also a business. So if the manager's not performing, you can make instant changes quickly. And I, I love that aspect of it. Um, I also notice how tedious that is as well and and difficult. Uh, but then I started buying some multifamily uh, apartment complexes in Kansas. So obviously I'm in apartment complexes. I still have my own portfolio of apartment complexes. And then I really got led to mobile home parks uh, for a myriad of reasons, um, just because I, I like the con uh, the consistent cash flow. I like the depreciation. I like that there's a stigma around it and for all these reasons. So I've invested in all of those and I've, I'm invested into some funds for crypto. I've invested in a bunch of startup companies, um, smaller amounts because I know those are very volatile. So I'm a little bit all over the place, but super focused on the real estate front now mobile home park uh very focused so so what i'm hearing is so you started out as like this college dropout who played a bunch <laughs> of poker you were making um, some serious money and you were doing this for five or six years uh and uh, yes I, I know extent i know how extensive that experience uh is as you've told me a bunch of crazy stories but yep um and then you you started buying and getting into the real estate game, and you, slowly you started you started with small homes, and then you've slowly upgraded uh, further and further down the stack. You're someone who knows how to find deals and do them themselves, and so now you run your own fund that does uh, mobile home parks. When was the point that you started to invest in other operators and not just do it on your own, and why? Yeah, I think it's been more of a recent transition. 
in operators. I've invested around four or five years ago in businesses because that was an allocation that I don't have any exposure to, right? I was so heavily focused into real estate. Um, Alibit, probably not that great. Businesses have a big failure rate, especially when you're investing in tech, as you know, um, which that has changed. I, my strategy has changed towards that in the latter parts of my life so far. Then after that, it was that I just was so overexposed to mobile home parks, which I think are incredible. But I just, I what I really started to see now um, at the point I am in my career, I like to be diversified in different avenues. So now I'm, I'm investing in uh, some crypto funds and some other operators who are in multifamily apartment complexes. Because there's pros and cons to every single investment. And you really need to know what are the, What's going to be highlight for you? What works for you as an investor? What's your appetite? What are you looking for? And if you can find those and be really picky towards the operator, um, then go for it. I think the second thing to really talk about there is now that I've been in the game much longer, I've met so many more operators. And so now I can really distinguish who's a good operator, who's not a good operator, who has a track record, who do I trust, and then I can make those decisions. You you said something in there, uh, which I've, I remember correctly. It was like you've had this transition of of starting to figure out of investing in other things. Like, wh- wh- why did you think that was the right transition period? Was it like, hey, ninety percent of my net worth is in is in real estate, so I want to I want to venture out, or is it? Yeah, how did how did that happen? Yeah, I think I have two different buckets, right? So uh, coming back from my poker background, I understand. Uh, asymmetrical bets. I, let me let me talk about uh, investing in the crypto fund, right? And I believe in crypto. I believe in technology. When I look at uh, how I want to p- be positioned for the future, it's like I understand what my bucket in real estate is going to do. I understand what IRRs I'm going to make. But I also understand there's this new tech that's coming out that I'm really excited about that I really like. But I also don't know anything about it. And there's people who are studying this and consuming this 24-7. So let me go invest with the experts and who are able to play the game on a bigger and higher level than I am. So I look at it as how do I want to be positioned 30 years from now? Not so much of on a ratio that I do. Now, obviously, I look at my portfolio and I say, wow, I'm invested uh, almost 95% in all real estate comparative to my net worth and and assets. So let me diversify this amount into that. It helps guide my decision. But I also just always look at 30, 40 years out and work myself backwards and say, how do I want to be positioned then on? What do I want to pass on to my kids? And that's, that's how I make all my investment decisions from the end goal first. And I'll work my way back. Yeah. And I know, um, you know, on the topic of crypto, you know, I know that you have both invested in a fund and uh, personally in a, in a bunch of different coins. So how do you how do you decide, you know, as you know, as a prospective LP, someone who's thinking about, oh, I, I want to get into crypto, you know, should they pick their own? Should, you know, how did you how did you decide which fund to go into? Yeah, this is a powerful question, because let me tell you what happened when crypto was first coming out. It was so much easier to do a lot of research and digging into each uh, coin that was coming out and see how they're uniquely positioned. Try to figure out how much you can about the operators and and where they're going. What happened in crypto was that as the industry grew more and more, more and more highly intelligent people come and started to, you know, bring these funds together, started to syndicate, syndicate the ICOs underneath them. And what I noticed is that I wasn't able 
to pick the winners as much as I was early on in the stage. When there's a lot of, I wouldn't say misinformation, but there's not all complete information, there's opportunity in that. So poker is a game of incomplete information and you need to uh, capitalize on that and make really good decisions. That's how it was in crypto in the beginning. It's a lot of information, some of it good, some of it bad, and you can pick winners. What I realized is as more and more people were making larger and larger sums, VC started to come in and capitalize on where the real money was at was those ICOs. And I started to find it harder and harder. So then I realized, hey, I'm essentially boxed out. I can't make all of these great decisions. And I said, now I need to invest with VCs who are on the ground level, who are making all the money. And you got to get your ego out of the way when it comes to like that. And so that's when I really decided, hey, you know what? I can't pick winners as much as I used to. It's not doing that good. So let me go invest with somebody else, which is actually better for me. So I don't have to think about it as much. Right. Yeah. And let alone like all the time um, dedicated to doing all the research on top of, you know, running your own company. And I know you have your own podcast. And yeah, this was before I started the company when I was really being able to be really into it in the, but you know, it really has slowed down. And I've also noticed that I was like, there's so much information flying with crypto. It's like hard to keep up with everything. So I'll let, I'll let the experts be the experts. And that's why, that's how I made that transition. Yeah. Yeah. And, and what, um, you know, for anyone listening, we keep talking about like crypto funds, like tell, tell us a little bit about this crypto fund. Like what makes this fund interesting to you? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm in the long game fund. Right. And I'm sure a lot of GoBundance people know about it, ran by Dan Nunny. The really what made it interesting to me, which is always who are the operators? I know the operators very well. I trust them. And that's like number one. Right. But I also like how they're uniquely positioned because they're uniquely positioned with Coin and Tyler, who run Bitcoin Magazine, who are on the forefront of everything, who have connections on a deep level. If someone just started it and they were just crypto enthusiasts, I wouldn't invest with them. What's their unique proposition? They might be smarter than me. They may be able to study it more than me. But still, I need something that's more unique. And that's when network comes in. I think this is while also what you're doing, Pascal, is so beautiful because what you're delivering is access where access wouldn't typically be allowed, right? And so when you invest in these funds and you develop these things, it's because of your access and your network that you're able to get into them. That's what made it really interesting to me because they're on the ground level and they're able to get deals because I do know that people who start new projects will probably want to work with them because of their connections that they have. So totally. Yeah. yeah okay. So to, to just add a little bit more color. So, so, uh, the long game fund is run by, um, three of our friends, uh, in GoBundance and, and two of which run Bitcoin magazine that also hosts the largest Bitcoin conference in Miami. So the largest players, probably in the space. Uh, and so yeah. therefore get access to all that deal flow. And that's what Pasha is saying is that unique advantage. So um, same, same trend of, of find operators you trust and what is their unique advantage. Right. Yeah. Yep. Uh, before the show, we talked about uh, all the different kinds of funds that you've invested into. So you, you, you mentioned that you've invested in a crypto fund, uh, multifamily and in, uh, Obviously, mobile home parks through your own company. You also mentioned that you've invested in, you know, a cannabis fund. Talk to us. Say, yeah, I, I would love to dive into that and talk through the like uh, lessons God. learned, what happened. Yeah. Like, give the scenario. Uh, this was about. I invested in this cannabis farm about five years ago, 
And um, it was one of my earlier investments. And so I had uh, I had known the gentleman, but I hadn't vetted him enough, right? One back then when I invested in this, there's so many lessons that I, I can teach you. But really, uh, there was a lot of red flags very early on uh, with him, but I had trusted him. Uh, I knew him from personal development work. And I knew he was creating cannabis farm, but it, and also went along with my investment thesis is that I like to invest in macro trends. I like to invest what's going to happen 10 years from now and not so much what's in the moment. Cause I have that bucket in real estate. I know what's happening. So I really like that. I knew him, but again, it goes back to our back thing. I, if I had a better network at that time, I wouldn't have invested in his. There would have been other opportunities. I just like the deal. So I invested a hundred thousand to this deal. And really quickly on, uh, the red flag was the lack of communication with him and the lack of actual answers. And it sometimes took me two to three weeks to get him on the actual phone. And I never saw any results. I never saw quarterly updates. I never saw anything. So the, that was really big red flags. And, you know, anytime I tried to get him to give me anything, it was always a runabout. And I, I quickly wrote it off in my mind, like, this is going to fail. And it actually just failed a few months ago because, uh, sad to say, we found out he was essentially stealing from us. Uh, so he was taking the investment money. Um, and when, uh, another investor audited all the books, cause he took over, we had the board vote him in, just found out that he essentially took our money and didn't invest it where he should. So this is why trust is really important, uh, at the end of the day. Yeah. So, so, that's a common theme that I'm trying to figure out how to solve of like, how do you make the transparency and how often you get reports from, from operators? Uh, how, what, how do you think you solve for that now? Right? Like it was only after you made the investment when you were trying to figure out how's the project going, like were there signs beforehand that you maybe could have seen or how do you try to avoid that in funds moving forward? Yeah. Um, listen, I, I have learned Time and time again, and I think many, many, many people have learned this, is that when it's too good to be true, it's too good to be true. So when he showed me his numbers back then, I realized now that there's no way he's ever going to hit these numbers. Um, and I also took his word for what the industry was. Now, I, I also do understand that the industry got hit and the prices that he was showing me at the time it dramatically decreased because so many different farms came onto the market, especially here in California. I understand that, but I don't have a strong operator. So there's a, you know, a ton of things that you could do, vet them, right? Call other people, ask for references, ask specific questions to see if they will be transparent with you. And I did not do that because if anyone is transparent, they'll be like, no, yeah, no problem. Here's a bunch of referrals. Go ask this person. I had one in, I had one investor ask me to run a uh, credit report score on me and a background check. I said, sure, of course, no problem. Right. Because I had nothing to hide. Um, very transparent, but I would have asked some of those questions and then seen if they were uncomfortable and see what they would be willing to do and, and to give. So that's a really good will way to see if they're if you trust them or not. But at this point, uh, what I have learned, go ask for referrals, go see people, go get the track history of this person. You know, um, has he ever done anything? Turn over as many rocks as you can. Yeah. 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 I, I have a rule that I, I try to really only invest with operators that, uh, have a business doing this and have a, mm. like you can Very see good. that yeah. they've, 
they've maybe opened up multiple farms in your case. Exactly. Uh, That's such a good, good point to look at as well. Yeah. How do you, uh, so you've had this one poor experience, uh, with investing in this cannabis farm. How does that, how does that change your uh, mindset or what, uh, like, do you want to continue investing in cannabis or is it like, Hey, you know, I'm still hot on this space. I just, you know, I learned my lesson. I picked the wrong operator. Yes. I, I when when I see a macro trend I want to be in I want to be in it. If I lose money, it doesn't affect me like it affects everybody else. Lose like that sucks. Like the rule number one of investing is that you shouldn't lose money because it takes so much time. But listen, you just got to shake yourself off and just keep going. So I still love what cannabis is going to deliver, maybe on a, a longer time horizon than I had originally thought five years ago. But it's still going to become federally regulated and it's going to be national and there's going to be a lot of money and there's going to be a lot of big winners in it. So if I find the right one that also matches my investment criteria, I will absolutely invest in it because, again, it's not about now. It's about what's going to happen 15 years from now. When you so I'd like to I'd like to maybe go down this rabbit hole, you know, before we talked about maybe going down this rabbit hole of how what how do you look at macroeconomic trends or how do you educate yourself to figure out what you invest into what is your thesis on cannabis like why are you so hot on it because i just know that uh there's so many states that still need to uh give it regulation and make it legal within their state so there's a big opportunity there and everyone already does it there's enough evidence to know <laughs> that everyone <laughs> smokes weed and does weed. I don't. I, I, it messes me up too much, but I don't. But I, I also understand there's a massive marketplace there. And I also always think follow the money. States are going to want to make it legal because they have a lot of revenue that's going to come from it. So eventually it's all going to be taxable. And the government, I promise you, is always looking for new avenues to make more taxes. So I know it'll become legal and I know that the big players will start to consume these medium players and the medium players will consume the small players and I know capitalism will shine. So it's a hundred, this is such an easy trend to follow because you know, if you're an adult, so many people do it. It's like a no brainer. Yeah. Yeah. Is that how you, I mean, I feel like these are just perspectives or views that we kind of have from having conversations or you might go to a seminar like where are you coming up with these theses like is it you're talking to friends you're you're starting to see things in a different light like how do you decide cannabis versus you know something else just open your eyes (laughs) you know no um here's the thing so uh do i try to look at macro trends for sure do i do i research things that i'm interested in personally yes i don't want to invest in anything that I'm not interested in because I don't care, right? There's, <laughs> there's a lot of things that are out there that are, are, are super profitable. But if I don't want to educate myself, if I don't want to know the updates, why am I going to invest in it, right? I'll make money elsewhere. That's, there's, and this is another thing is that there's so much opportunity in America and there's so many different avenues to invest in. So I like to personally invest in things that I enjoy, that I like, um, and I want, I can see it right in front of me, right? I see how many people smoke weed. So it's very visceral for me. And that's what I like to invest in because uh, it makes it easier for me to want to do the research and to easy to follow the macro trends. And I also look for no-brainers, right? I'm not trying to 
be the smartest guy in the room and, and research this one crazy niche within a niche within a niche and do all these creative things. No, man, like get rich slow. And that is a trend that's on the wall. Yeah. Yeah. No, I like that. Talk to me about your first fund. You've gotten to this point where you are now a fund manager and you've also invested in other people's deals. Yeah. What was your first deal? What was that like? The first deal that we did as a company? No, just or you as invested, invested. In, as an LP. Um, as an LP, yeah. There's There was Obsidian Capital um, with a kid named David Tupin. And I met him at a conference and he was my mentor for underwriting because I hired him how to teach me how to underwrite before he had all of his programs and before he had his pro forma out. And so I just knew the kid was incredibly intelligent. So I trusted him. I knew how uh, passionate he about was. And so you want to bet on the jockey. And so he brought the first deal over to me um, and I invested 75000 into his deal. And it worked out wonderfully. Yeah. Um, because it was, it was in a great market. There's a lot of macro trends. I liked it. I trusted the operator. I trusted the numbers, right? Um, one thing that you got to be really careful for in operators and in real estate, um, not so much in go buttons, but really anyone who's listening though, uh, within their network, it is really easy. And this is the hard part. It's really easy to change your numbers to make it look good for an investor. Like it is so incredibly easy for me to change an, an exit cap rate one point or 100 basis points to make my IRRs super padded. But that's why you really have to test these numbers. You have to understand what you're investing into and ask the hard questions. And you have to work with operators that you know, right? So I've seen, I saw a lot of deals that I wasn't interested in, but I know David Tupin's numbers. I know what his conservative underwriting is because things will go wrong in real estate. And if you're not positioned to absorb that, you're, it's going to go wrong. And that's what a lot of operators do. They just, want to make the fees they want to make uh the big bucks and if something happens man you're screwed yeah so walk walk me through that i'm i'm investing in a fund uh or as prospective listeners uh investing in a fund what is what do i look for like how, if if this is my first time i could walk you through what i look for specifically first thing is first is i i want to i want to like the market trend cuz i feel like a market trend can absorb if an operator ends up just whiffing it. Okay. So like if you invest in, let's say Dallas, or if you invest in, in Austin or all these big cities, you know, uh, the, the market is so hot. It can help pad your numbers if you're, if you go wrong. So that's number one. Number two is, do I trust the operator? And now with the vetting process of asking them uncomfortable questions, going in deep with them, a bunch of referrals, uh, track history, demeanor, everything about it. That is the most important because whenever you're investing into a fund, you're investing in the operator and not the deal by deal basis. You're investing in the operator. So you have to trust them again. And then with, then I'll look at the numbers. What are their rental increases? What are their payroll numbers? What are their numbers for utilities? More importantly, what's their exit strategy? How are they evaluating? Five years from now, do they think cap rates are going to keep going down? Well, then you're insane. What if it doesn't? You don't know what's going to happen five, 10 years from now. So I always make sure there's a lot of uh, potential there because then if they can make these numbers with 
uh, a little bit of a higher cap rate, like a 0.5 difference of cap rate higher, then I'm like, okay, we're good. That's in multifamily, right? In mobile home parks is a little different. Uh, I, then I personally, because I'm a cash flow investor, I love passive income. Uh, what are the cash flows? When do I start getting my cash flows? And then what are my IRRs? I have to have over 17, 18% or I won't, I won't even look at it, right? And so what's the depreciation? If I'm not getting depreciation and you're, the operator's taking depreciation away from me, I don't even want to be in it because this is, the, you know, 80% this year, 60% year. I want to hoard as much depreciation as I can. Are there fees aligned? So this is another one. Is this an operator who is feeing me to death? Do they need to make this deal work so that they can put food on the, the table? Usually I only invest in deals where their alignment of interest are there. And so if they're feeing me to death, there's a bunch of excess fees. It's just kind of like you're just a deal junkie at that point and you're not here for longevity. And then uh, lastly is how much are they putting into the deal themselves? And, and, and then that way I know that their interests are aligned with me essentially. So it's, it's all over the box. I love that. That was a great walkthrough. So there's two points that I maybe wanted to hit on here, which is one is fees. How do you know what fees are appropriate and how do you if you're making your return like let's say you know uh gp gives you a 25 percent irr um do you care like you know if they if they took a ton of fees and you still make a huge return like does that matter to you this is this is such a good question pascal because there's i think there's two types of investors there's an investor who counts my money and then there's an investor who counts their money Right. And I, I never want to work with investors who count my money. Basically, like I'm doing a lot of work. You don't see what's happening behind the, the curtain and what we're doing for you guys. So yes and no. It, 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 it does matter, but it doesn't matter. If someone's giving me a 25% return on my capital and I trust them and they're taking a 10% fee and I love everything about it. Good. Make money. You've made a niche within it. I'm still making 25%. That's freaking excellent. But then also then what are the factors? What are the risk factors? Are they still aligned with me? Are they still investing with me? I want people to get rich. If they found something and they're doing all the hard work, good for them, make money. But then also, um, you know, but if you're uh, just starting off and then let's say in a multifamily apartment complex and you don't have a track history and I don't really know you and there's a bunch of fees that are going on, but the numbers are still low, then no, like go screw yourself. I don't want to be part of this thing, right? Where's the incentives here? So, Yeah. Do you have a knock on if there are acquisition fees or disposition fees or like are there certain fees you just absolutely don't like? Is that, you know, are <laughs> Um, I, I don't like, uh, loan guarantee fees when there's no recourse, like if it's not recourse debt and there's a loan guarantee fee, it's, it's a, it's a different story, right? In mobile home parks, everything I do, it's all recourse debt. I haven't in my first fund, which I'm going to change it the next one. I'm going to put a loan guarantee, but it's all recourse debt. So I should get something from it. I don't like when they do that. Um, I don't like when the asset management fees are too high, uh, but then, you know, like you, you can read and there's not one that stands out. But you, when you read these documents and they don't have it like really di- like disclosed, 
in the fun deck and then you start reading the fine print and it's like, I don't like it when there's like seven different fees for like the smallest things, right? And there's not one I can that stands out, but it's like you have a 2% here, 1% here, 1.5% here, 0.5% here, 0.5% here, 1% here. It's just like, why? Yeah. <laughs> like, just make it simpler and be honest and transparent about it. And people respect that more. Yeah. Well, okay. So just to recap for our listeners, some uh, concepts I want to make sure we cover. So we're talking about recourse debt and non-recourse debt. So uh, just re- recourse debt means um, it's basically when you get a loan on, let's call it one of Pasha's mobile home parks. Uh, and that, if if the bank wants to be able to take that back, that's recourse debt. Um, and non-recourse debt me- means that the uh the company, the bank cannot take that piece of that loan. Can can it get Pasha to pay back the loan because it's based on the property and not him? How would you explain that? Yeah, just explain non recourse debt. Essentially, is they can't come after me as an individual. So uh, everything I sign is recourse debt. So if I fail and the property goes in bankruptcy, they can come after me after anything that I still owe them, right? And so I'm individually liable for any of my properties that go wrong. And so you do not want recourse debt. Non-recourse debt happens, let's say in a 2008 scenario and everything happens and people stop paying rent, that that means they can only go after the property as a non-recourse debt. I don't have any liabilities. So as an operator, you want non-recourse debt. As an investor in general, you want non-recourse debt. The difference for what I do is because I work in secondary and tertiary markets with smaller properties, that need a lot more work up front. Typically, the bigger banks like Fannie and Freddie don't invest into our deals because we still have to do a lot of operations. So we have to go to regional banks and we have to sign a personal guarantee, which falls back on me if we fail. Got it. And so you're saying, hey, look, people that have non-recourse debt, but then still charge you a fee for, you know, guaranteeing the loan, that's basically like... Why are they getting... Okay, I'll guarantee that anything. Yeah. 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 They have to do paperwork and that's and that's fine, but label the fee as a as like a an admin you know. fee. Yeah, exactly. Totally. So. Uh something you also mentioned was uh, talking about how much the operator invests with you. Uh how much capital are they putting down? H- how much are you looking for them to put down? And does that change if you're working with a fund that has a, a billion under management, for example? Of course. Yeah. Hundred um, percent. I I don't think. I mean, there's the the easy answer is if it's under five percent. I don't really want to deal with it because I'm sure they can roll in their fees. I want something at least ten percent. It depends on the size of the fund. It depends if they have a lot of money into it. If I'm evaluating a deal or a fund that has a billion dollars worth of assets and the guy has five million invested in, in there, it's like he doesn't care as much as the guy who has two hundred million invested into it. Right. Right. They're just going to work harder. They believe in someone who has a lot of their own personal net worth tied up to that fund. They believe in what they're doing. And you have to understand that. And there's people who are just have funds and syndications and they just are doing it because they need to make money, which is there's a lot of good operators that are out there. But I want to make sure that they're really driven for results because they have their net worth tied up into it as well. What are what are some of the biggest 
I don't know, scratch your head moment. So you run a vote capital, you raise capital uh, for uh, mobile home parks, and you you deal with LPs and potential investors all day, and you get different kinds of questions. Like, what are maybe some misunderstandings uh, that you get from prospective LPs? I think I think I'm I'm positioned a little bit more unique because I I feel like my job um, as the operator is to educate. Uh, people on mobile homes and mobile home parks and how it actually works. So I find a lot of my calls are essentially me educating what we do and how we do it and why this works, right? And it's but it's different in a, in apartment complexes. Everyone understands how how that works, right? I think the biggest misconception that a lot of my investors um, have some pause on or need more education around or or, or need a little bit more. Um, just thought and effort into it is their tax incentives, like their tax depreciation. A lot of my investors don't understand how to utilize that as well as I would say some savvy investors. And then, and then secondly, if, if I could wave a magic wand, I would have everyone understand uh, the value of velocity of money and how important that is to drew, truly uh, creating generational wealth. And so I find a lot of times re-explaining the velocity of money. Again, now there's savvy investors who all know this, but I also have a lot of investors who don't know this. And so it's really those two. And then secondly, just teaching them how mobile home parks are different than apartment complexes, but how we're uniquely positioned um, in that context. Yeah. Do you feel comfortable diving into those two topics? I, I'm interested. Sure. Let's go. Yeah. Okay. So let's let's start with the first one, like ta- tax-wise. What what do you, what do savvy investors maybe understand that that someone new to this doesn't understand as well? Yeah, so um, I think savvy I think savvy investors understand the tax implica- implications if you sell very quickly. What happens and you're going to have to repay that. So I think unsavvy investors say, "Oh, like look how much money I'm making." But savvy investors will say, "Well, I'm going to make this, but then what are my tax implications?" So savvy, you, someone invests. With you, and then two years later, you sell the mobile home park. Yeah, you're, you're going to have to pay capital gains on that, right? Right. Which we don't because we don't sell. We have a long term fund. It's a forever fund. We don't sell. We're long term holders. So yes, you're going to have to pay taxes on that. So even though yes, you're making X percentage amount, you're going to have to automatically go ahead and pay 35 percent of that unless you, you uniquely position with your CPA. I'm not an expert. Figure it out yourself. Um, and then. The second one is de- de- depreciation, right? Everyone, so savvy investors understand what bonus depreciation is and what it did for the last six years, eight years for us and how it's going away now. But how to utilize that, how to prepare for that. And so they really use that as a tax shelter against other passive income, unless you're a real estate professional. Please again, at. Ask your CPA. I'm not a professional. I am literally trained to just, that is an automatic response for me that just to say, please consult your CPA and uh, how to use that to really avoid paying taxes, and how it could roll over on the future. So a lot of my investors now who are high earners invest because in mobile home parks, let's just say for last year, for example, just to give some contrast in an apartment complex, on average, you can the bonus depreciate last year 35% of the purchase price up front for the purchase price that you bought it, right? So if you bought a place for a million dollars, you can 
do a bonus depreciation and write off $350,000 off of um, your taxes. But in mobile home parks, I'm easily achieving at least 70%, on average 75%. So in that million-dollar scenario, I'm now able to depreciate $750,000 in year one, right? So for high-income high earners, that's massive, right? Especially for people who live in California, like myself, that's a 50%. Well, you can't write off state taxes here in California. So that's 40% you can write off. Um, so, so a lot of my investors are really interested in mobile home parks because of the tax depreciation. So someone can come and invest 100000 Last year in the fund alone, we were able to write off 95% of the investment amount. My syndication deals, I was able to do 120%. just depends on the LTVs of the loans that we, we were able to get. So if you invest 100000 you automatically can save 40000 in, in in savings. Your your basis is really 60000 If that's how you look at it, a lot of my investors do. And then so I think anything after that is just easy and cheddar. And so... So, yeah. so is that actually? When, I'm wrong. Sorry, you could write off. I apologize because we're able to write off more on a 100k investment. We gave 95,000 in depreciation. They're gonna have. They're gonna be able to write that off. So, really, their basis, if you look at that, that is, it's neutral. Yeah. So, yeah, so, so when you when you have these LPs on, is the confusion around how depreciation works, or yes, got it. And and it's like okay, knowing what you can write off, what other what income you can write off, for example, like your W two. Not easy to write off unless you consult your CPA and maybe consult your a- CPA. <laughs> you figure something out, which I know some have figured it out. Some CPAs allow certain things, some don't. I don't know. Like I said, <laughs> you figure it out. Yeah. Okay. Um. And then the the second piece that you talked about was velocity of money. Let's dive into that. So it's like. So velocity of money is, uh, I think, what every real estate investor should be thinking about. How do I get my money in? How fast can I get my money back out? Doing two things that are so important, de-risking your com- your whole investment, right? And now you're in a basis of zero. If you're able to get in out to plus depreciation, you're just already winning. And then secondly, how do I take that money and go invest into another asset that's going to do the same thing? Right. And so, again, if we have a long term lens on here, we want to put money in. We want to take it out so we completely de risk our investment. And then we go reinvest that initial investment amount into something else. And now you have two assets instead of one that's appreciating for you because we're never going to stop printing money in our economy. Right. And so things are going to naturally. So, something I'm thinking here is like, okay, I invest 200K with you, you give me 200K back my investment has now ended. You're talking about in deals where there's a refinance and you might get your principal back, but you're not taxed on that, correct? Can you yes. give that? Can you give an example Thank like you. by the numbers? Yeah, sure. Thank you. Thank you for explaining that because we we do a big refi project. So let's say someone invests $100,000 with us. We're going to give them an eight pref, right? So you're going to make an eight, 8% interest on your money for as long as we have your initial capital in. And during that time for us, we're able to hit double digits cash flows in year two and all of our portfolios. That's one of our metrics that we go by. So not only are you making 8,000 the first year on your 100,000, you're going to make about, this is ballparks, 10,000 the next year, 12,000 the next year. I found 14,000 the next year after that, even after our promote, which we do a 70, 30 is, is, is about average of what you're going to make you're going to, on average 12%. In year five, we're going to be able to refi and get a hundred percent of your money back. 
And when you do that, you completely de-risk your investment. So you take that 100K back plus whatever all cash flows you made in the years uh, preceding as well, minus some cash, capital contribution because of the higher above the pref, right? But for easy numbers, you get that 100K back and then you still have equity in the deal moving forward in proportion to your investment amount, which you will keep getting cash flows on in proportion to your investment amount. So not only have you de-risked your investment, you still are building equity and cash flows and lifetime cash flows in what we call the infinite cash flow club. Yes, it's a little cheesy, but it's that's what it's called. And so you've completely gotten your money back. You now have cash flows on money that you can then go reinvest into another deal. That's the velocity of money. So that in that year five scenario, now you go buy another property. Now you have two properties that is building equity for you and appreciation and cash flow. And then the theory here is in another five years, you go refi out of those two properties and then you can keep doubling. And that's the velocity of money. That's like compound interest at work. But what we're able to do because we're in commercial real estate, we're able to do that sometimes earlier than that year five. So that's the velocity of money. How fast can this money work for me? Get back, go work on another property for me. And that's velocity of money. And that is one metric I hammer in into any deal that I'm looking at and who we are at Evoke. We're all about velocity of capital. And this yeah, is so, why we like the niche that we're in. So you you make, I'm on, all on board with the velocity, I, I think in the same way. Yeah. When you... But there are investments that don't have that quality. So how, That's correct. So, like, is it more, hey, I want to invest in crypto, for example. I don't know if my, you know, you're not, like, refining and get money no. out of this other asset class, no. right? Uh, and so, you know, saying you look for, you look for, when you're investing in real estate, things that have a high velocity of money. And then maybe when you're at other asset classes, that's just, like, a factor that that you don't care about, or how, how do you think about that? Again, it's 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 your investment profile and your risk profile. For me, if I, investing in that crypto, I look at it as something I don't even consider coming back to me, right? Because it's such a volatile asset, and I know that I've lost money in in crypto. I think most people in GoBundance knows that, right? But we're not going to get to some numbers there. But uh, it's okay because I. I look at it as an asymmetrical bet. I believe that the risk outweighs uh, or the reward outweighs the risk if it hits. And so that IRR return on a crypto fund could be astronomical, right? And so I already have my buckets in real estate that are very conservative. So that's how I look at the difference. Everything is a ask yourself powerful questions. Would I want to be in here? Would I want to regret it? What, how am I going to be positioned in the future? How do I do it? You know, do you use it? Uh, in a self-directed IRA so that if you have those astronomical returns, you have to pay taxes on it. So you have to start asking all these really important questions. And I think, again, it's on a deal-to-deal basis, but you really have to understand the biggest thing that I, I that surprises me, uh, Pascal, is that investors don't know their goals. They don't have a strategy in front of them. They don't have a they – just, they just maybe come into some money and they don't understand – what to do with it in the sense of they don't have a an end goal in mind. And when you have a very clear end goal in mind, you can really make your decisions very easily. But when people are like, well, should I invest in this or should I invest in that? Should I invest in this? It's just very clear to me that you don't know where you're trying to work for. And some investors love the development deals. They love that big equity multiple. 
right? And they don't care about cash flows. It's a different game. So you just have to understand your uh, what you're looking to accomplish and then invest with those same alignments. How did you figure that out for you? Um, I bought, you know, it's, there's no science to it. You just got to ask yourself powerful questions. I, I know that I am a passive income investor. I want to create enough passive income. I've always had a dream that uh, if I don't want to work, I don't want to work. And that's kind of what I've told myself since I was young. I want to get to the point where if I don't want to work, I don't have to work. Right. And so that's passive income. So it's not net worth because you could have a hundred million dollar net worth, but you still have to work depending on how that's structured and bringing money in and whatever. But me, it's like, hey, I just want to have a lot of cash flow coming in. I want to build my foundation. So I'm conservative that way. I want my foundation to be so strong. And then I'll take that cash flow and keep going buy more real estate, which will multiple. I'm I'm more of the snowball effect. Right. And that's what I'm waiting for. So that just aligned with me. And that's not for everybody. There's no exact science to it. You just yeah. got to know your risk profile. Do you have a family? Do you have, what are the risks? What do you, what worries you? What gives you anxiety? All of those things. Pasha, this was awesome. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciated this. Yeah, this was fun. I think what you're doing is awesome, man. Thanks, man.